Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. Now, as we all know, today is Resurrection Day. And today is the first Sunday of the month, so it's also the day that we celebrate communion. And really, uh, what a combination. Because on communion, it's the day that we look back, remember, and give thanks for the resurrection victory of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. And as Elder Iva said, Minutes ago, this resurrection victory of Jesus then gives us the victory today, victory over the enemy, any of the attacks, false accusations, fiery darts, anything from the enemy. We have the victory because of Jesus' resurrection. That's victory over death, the fear of death, over sickness, poverty, fear. And we have the victory and the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus. Resurrection Day is indeed perhaps the most important day. I shouldn't say perhaps, it is the most important day. It's the most important event for us Christian believers. I like to say that R equals V. Resurrection equals victory. It's the resurrection that gives us the victory over all of the challenges in our life. Now, these words, he is risen, which is the title of today's message. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 6, and see these words. Because these are the most consequential words written in the Bible. Matthew 28, 6 says, he is not here, for he is risen. And of course, this is referring to the resurrection of, resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the entire scripture there. Let's start at verse 1, Matthew 28. And we're going to look and read verses 1 through 10. It says, Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. This is the tomb where Jesus had been laid after the crucifixion. And behold, verse 2, there was a great earthquake for the angels of the Lord descended from heaven and it came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Three, his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Four, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In other words, they were frozen. Five, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And in verse 6, he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. Seven, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Verse 8, so they went and quickly, so they went quick, went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Verse 10, and Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. 16, then the 11 disciples went into Galilee, the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now I want to focus on the verse 17 part that says some doubted. When the disciples saw him, they worshiped him, but as the verse said, some doubted. This means that some doubted that he had risen. Since the resurrection of Jesus is the very foundation of our Christian faith, we want to make sure that we don't entertain any doubt about this crucial event. And looking for proof, we know that there are some historical and scientific facts that validate the life of Jesus. But we want to look to the word. The word that we have faith in, that we believe in, the word of God, uh, 
verses uh, uh, in John 17, 17. You don't have to turn there. You might you mark it down so you can look at, look at it later. John 17, 17. Jesus declares that the Father's word is truth. So we should be able to find the validation of the resurrection in the word of truth, this Bible that we study. Now, uh, Mark's gospel is like Matthew. They end pretty much with the same narrative. They end pretty much with Mary Magdalene going to the tomb and seeing the resurrected Jesus. So to get a deeper look at the post-resurrection events, we need to look more to the Gospels of Luke and John, where they give a broader picture of what happened after the resurrection. This examination is important because we need to have verification from as many sources as possible about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, and we're going to go to this verse later, but it's in Corinthians. He says, if there was no resurrection, then our preaching, meaning those who preach Christ, our resurrection is in vain and your faith is useless. So it's very important that we do have faith in the resurrection. So that's why I'm going to spend time on that this morning. Uh, we want to see in the word the many infallible proofs. This is a word used by Luke of the bodily resurrection that Jesus that Luke mentions in Acts 1-3. The definition of infallible is something that is incapable of being wrong, something dependable. Luke calls it the infallible proof of the resurrection of Jesus. So turn, I want you to see this verse. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And see this. In Acts 1, verse 3, Luke records this. He says, to whom, meaning the apostles, he, Jesus, presented himself alive after his suffering by many, by many infallible proofs, meaning he presented himself to the apostles, thereby providing many infallible proofs. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we see in this passage from Luke, uh, the confirmation of the fact that Jesus spent 40 days on earth after the resurrection. So many things took place during that time. There was an opportunity for many people to see him. And many people did. Apostle Paul gives us a partial summary of some of the times and events when Jesus was seen during the 40 days. And I want you to look at this account of Paul. It's in 1 Corinthians. I'll give you a chance to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 8. This is Paul discussing the sightings of Jesus and the people who saw him after the resurrection. Let's begin at verse 3. He says, for I, this is Paul writing, For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. For that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to scriptures. Five, and that he was seen by Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. And by the twelve. Six, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He was seen by over 500 brethren, of whom the greater part remain. He means remain at the time he's writing this but some have fallen asleep. Seven, after that he was seen by James, that's the brother of Jesus, and by all the apostles. And eight, then last of all, he was seen by me, meaning me, Apostle Paul, also, as by one born out of due time. Now, in verse six, Paul mentions that Jesus had been seen by over 500 at once. He goes on to say that the greater part of that number remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. Let me explain what this means. Historically, we know that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians around 55 AD. This is 55 or 52, depending on how you count it, uh, years after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died around 30 or 33 AD. So the period Paul is talking about is some 22 to 25 years after the resurrection. 
This would account for many of the individuals who saw Jesus still being alive at the time of the writing, which again was 22 to 25 years after the resurrection. So in terms of Jesus being seen after his resurrection, we have already read the account of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary on resurrection morning. When you read the same account in Luke's gospel, that's Luke's gospel 24, you can mark it down, you don't have to go there, that's Luke's gospel chapter 24 verses 1 through 12, we find that there were several other women in the group. There's also the account of Jesus interacting with two disciples on the road, and this is in Luke 24, uh, chapter 13, verses, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke 24, verses 13 through 31, you can just mark them down, where he appeared to 10, to 10 apostles on resurrection evening. I'm sorry, no, actually he appeared to the 10 apostles on resurrection evening, and this is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. And he finally appears to doubting Thomas. You remember Thomas was the disciple who said, you know, unless I can put my hand into the wound and so forth, I won't believe. So he appears to doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, the gospel of John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. And to the seven by the sea of Galilee in the gospel of John verses 21. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. You can mark those down, and of course, they'll be on the recording, too, just to show the, the various sightings and the people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. But I want to take a closer look at Doubting Thomas. So turn to the Gospel of John and go to chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 24 and 29. This is the Gospel of John. Chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. In 24, now Thomas called a twin, one of the 12, one of the 12 of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, this is verse 25, we have seen the Lord. So he, meaning Thomas, said to them, unless I see his hands, I'm sorry, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, he's saying, unless I see, I will not believe. Verse 26, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Now, nothing is idle in the Bible. When it says the doors are shut, what is it telling you? that he simply came through the wall. He didn't have to come through the door. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your fingers here and took, oh, and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And that's the category that we fall in. We have not seen the resurrected Jesus, but we do believe. We are in that number. Now let's look at another thing that happened when Mary Magdalene first reported to the disciples after her encounter with Jesus. But let me explain a little bit about Mary Magdalene. First of all, some of you have observed that it's, she seems to be the only person in the Bible and certainly the only woman who has a last name. Nobody has a last name. Well, Magdalene is not a last name. Magdalene was just an indication of a town that she came from, which is a town called uh, Magdalia. It's a town in Galilee, and that means, Magdalia means uh, uh, tower or castle. So this was to identify her from the other two Marys in the Bible and so forth. So that is not her last name. Now, going back to Mary Magdalene, after she reported to the disciples that she had seen the risen Lord, some did not believe her and they wanted to see the tomb for themselves. But Peter, who was impetuous, didn't wait for the others. Uh, he, he rose and ran to the tomb 
And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. In other words, the funeral wrappings were there, but the body, of course, was not there. Now, you may recall that in our previous discussions of the Holy Spirit, we read of Jesus appearing to the disciples that we find in Acts chapter one, verse four, which states this. After being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promised Holy Spirit of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. In other words, wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to tell them, and he tells them this in Acts chapter one, verse eight. These are scriptures that we have gone over time and time again. It, it, it has reference to the Holy Spirit. He says this in Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, I cite this because I want you to remember that this is Jesus making these statements to the apostles after his resurrection. He also appeared to the disciples after his resurrection when he gave them the Great Commission. This, this is recorded in Mark chapter 16. Just go there and look in case some of you don't recall what the Great Commission is. Mark chapter 16. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 15. This is Mark 16 verses 14 through 15. In verse 14, later he, that's Jesus, appeared to the 11, that's the disciples, as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. In verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This great commission is given to them after his resurrection. That's what I want you to understand. While these sightings of Jesus are taking place, let's keep in mind that as soon as the news of the sightings began to spread, efforts were made by the Jewish high priest to invalidate and to shut down this news. Jesus and the prospect of his resurrection were seen as a direct threat to the Jewish faith. One of the efforts to suppress the truth is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. That's Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. You can mark them down or you can follow along with me. I'm going to read this to you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. In verse 11, it says, Now while they, meaning Mary and the other women, were going, behold, some of the guard at the tomb came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Twelve, when they, the priests, had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, meaning tell the people, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make, make, make you secure. In other words, the guards could have been punished because Jesus disappeared. 15, so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, namely that his disciples had come and taken his body away not that he had risen. So what I pointed out last year, and I'll point out this again, we can see here that fake news and alternative facts didn't start last year <laughs> or this year, although it is heavily used in certain quarters today. The Jewish leaders were very intent on stamping out this news of the risen Jesus. They not only propagated the fake news, but carried out a program of physical attacks and even death to anyone who said they had seen the risen Jesus. In point of historical fact, many people in those early days were put to death, and you know this from Bible history, if they said that they had seen the risen Jesus, and many others were put to death if they would not recant or deny to the authorities what they had witnessed with their own eyes. Now, it's important to us today to know that these many infallible proofs, meaning the infallible proofs of the sightings of the risen Christ, as Luke describes them, uh, were real. The fact that there were so many witnesses of the resurrected physical body of Jesus cannot be dismissed or discounted. This, this should certainly strengthen our faith in the resurrected Christ. 
But I want to single out two witnesses that I like, and I certainly have strong belief in their accounts of what happened. The first one is Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene is a person who was maligned in the early years of the church, mistakenly. They had said she was a fallen woman, a prostitute. This was not true. This is a person who did have problems, and she came, when she heard Jesus, she immediately became a witness for him, a believer. And she, you might call, was the first female disciple of Christ. Mary was always around Jesus whenever she could be there. She knew him. She sat at his feet. She listened to him. This is the same Mary who was at the cross during the entire resurrection from the beginning to the end. And why do I mention that? Because all the other disciples went and hid. They couldn't be found. They were afraid. Mary was there from beginning to end. She was also the first person to see Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus. So Mary is important. Now, you can mark this down. It's, uh, you don't have to go there. Well, you can go there. It's, it's uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. You were there a little while ago. You, you probably do need to see this. Go to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 20. Look at verse 16. Where Jesus says to Mary, and you see it written in red there, Mary in exclamation points and so forth. He was delighted to see her. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. It is this Mary who says later in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. This is a person who knew him. He knew her. I think we can believe her account. The other person I want to stake my faith on in terms of having seen the risen uh, Christ, the risen Jesus, is the Apostle Paul. He is also one who made a complete reversal of life like Mary did. And this was after his dynamic encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. You remember that when the blinding light struck him, he fell off his horse, he went blind for a while and so forth and so on. Uh, Paul, you recall, was the person who had persecuted the Christians in the early day, and he had authority given to him by the high priest, the Jewish priests, the rabbis, to bring in bound as prisoners any of the followers of what they call the way. This is what Christianity was called in, to bring them uh, and, and put them in prison where they were beaten and, uh, and worse. This was the Paul who had this dynamic encounter with uh, Jesus on the Damascus Road. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, he says this. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. He says, he's talking about the people who had seen Jesus. I just recited that earlier. This includes the 500 and so forth. He said, then last of all, he, Jesus, was seen by me meaning Paul also. We can believe Paul. We can also take Paul at his sworn oath that he gives in Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, which he says this. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Now like what the Amplified Bible says about that scripture. It puts it this way. Now, this is Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. Now, note carefully what I am telling you, for it is the truth. I write this as if I were standing before the bar of God. The bar, B-A-R, the bar of God, I do not lie. Again, I think we can believe Paul. Now, as you know, Paul went on to become the chief architect of the New Testament. He wrote at least 75% of the New Testament works. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes this. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read 23 through 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Greeks, you can count us among the Greeks. That's like the, uh, the Gentiles. 24, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, 
that includes us now, Christ, the power, and the wisdom of God. That's what he teaches, he's saying we teach. 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, after his conversion on the Damascus Road, Paul became the most fervent teacher of the gospel. Before going to the Greek city of Corinth, which was known as an intellectual city, these were where the smart people were, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse chapter 2, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, For I determined not to know anything among you. He means among you smart Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was focused on the ordained mission of salvation by Jesus, which included his death and resurrection. And again, I'm going to quote Paul. I mentioned this earlier. This is, and you need to know this. If you're not there, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I mean, sorry, chapter 15, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. You need to see this. Are you there? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. This is Paul writing. He says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, if Christ did not resurrect, then we're wasting our time today and any day that we're teaching faith in the risen Christ. But this is the important thing. And this is why I'm teaching this lesson today. We know that our belief in the resurrection of Jesus is full and complete. It's not empty. This is so vital to us believers because our very salvation and redemption is rooted in our belief in the resurrection. Our faith is not in vain. Let's remember what the scriptures say about salvation. And you know these by heart. It's in Romans 10, 9, 10. Romans 10, 9, 10. In Romans 10, 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what we lead everybody to and through when we're leading them to salvation. In verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We have to believe in the resurrected Jesus. Otherwise, we have no salvation. Now, let me note here that God sets a bar that's achievable for anyone seeking him and seeking to know him and seeking salvation through his son, Jesus. And why do I say the bar is achievable? Let's listen to what Romans 10, 9 says again. It says that we must believe in our hearts that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. It doesn't require, it does not require us to know this. In other words, we have to have faith in this. So it's very important. It doesn't require that we know that God raised him. That's why our theology, our Christianity, our Christian belief is a faith belief. We believe it by faith. So God only requires belief from us and expects us to act in faith on that belief and seek salvation. What is the definition of faith? Acting on one's belief. We believe that Jesus is the risen Lord. We act on that. We accept him as our Lord and Savior. We are brought into the body of Christ. We are baptized into the, uh, the, the body of Christ and we become part of God's family. This is all by faith. Now, when it comes to seeking God, generally the belief bar is the same. And the role of faith is also the same. This is a scripture you should all know and go to this one. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. When you're there, say you're there. Okay, when two more say they're there, I'll go on. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See what it says here? Must believe, we must believe that God is. It doesn't require us to know that God is. We do it by faith. Aren't you happy that we don't have to know that God is? Now, you come to know that God is through 
your belief and through your acceptance of his word and so forth. But to come to him, it's not required that you know that he is. You must believe that he is. Very important. We come to him and and become his children by faith. Now, returning to the declaration, he is risen. We have ample, infallible proof, as Luke says, to believe in the resurrection. Acting on this belief, our faith is both full and complete. And therefore, our teaching is not in vain and your faith is not useless. And this faith in the resurrection, faith in the risen Christ, is the one thing that sets us apart from all other religions. What do I mean by that? To understand what I mean by that, we can go as Mary Magdalene did, go to the tomb. She went to the tomb of Jesus. We can go to the tomb of all the other great religious leaders throughout history, and I'm gonna mention just a few here, and do what Mary did. She went seeking Jesus. In other words, are you there? He was not there. So Mohammed, you're at the tomb of Mohammed, and you call out. The answer is here. You go to the tomb of Buddha, and you call out. The answer is here. You go to Confucius, the tomb of Confucius, and you call out. The answer is here. Even to Abraham and Moses, who are considered the founders of Judaism, you inquire, and the answer is here. I'll go over any others, but when you come to the tomb of Jesus Christ, there is no answer because he is not here. He is risen. This is what separates us from all of the other religions, and that is that we serve a living God, a risen Savior, a resurrected Savior, someone that we have a personal relationship with. Not a statue that we worship, not a big round stone with a pot belly that we worship to, that can't respond to. And I'm not making light of it, I'm not making fun of it because all of these other religions have tremendous dynamic truths. In other words, if you live by what they advise you to live by, you would live a pretty decent life and so forth. The difference is we serve a risen Christ, a living God. This sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world. When you get that no answer at the tomb, the words in Matthew 28, verse 6, which declared, he is not here for he is risen, apply to only one, and that one is Christ Jesus, the one in whom we believe, the one we serve. We do not serve a dead God. We serve a living Savior, a living high priest, a living king. Jesus is as alive, and this is what's important, on this resurrection day, not just on this day. This is the day that we speak about it, but he, Jesus is as alive today as he was in the beginning. That is why we can rejoice on this resurrection day and every day because he is risen. He is alive and where is he? Eliva told us earlier, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And by the way, where he is, that's where we are. Even though you think you're seated here today and seated here, when God looks at us, guess where he sees us? Seated with Jesus at his right hand. That's where and how he sees us. When he sees us, he sees Jesus in us and so forth. That's why it is so important that we know that we have a resurrected uh, Christ, a resurrected Jesus. And that's why I say R equals V, resurrection equals victory. So now that we are focused on the resurrection, let's see if we can understand resurrection a little better because not all of us really understand what it means. We think it's an event. We think it's the event that happened at the tomb and so forth. And the resurrection did happen there. But let me see if I can give you a fuller understanding of what uh, resurrection means. Let's look at the familiar story of Lazarus. And I do want you to turn uh, to this. Turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. Here in 
John chapter 11, we find recorded the sickness, death, and resurrection of Lazarus. To summarize the story, Lazarus became very ill. I'm going to have you look at verse 5 in a little while of, of uh, John 11. Lazarus became very ill in his hometown of Bethany. And his sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus informing him of his sickness. Now, Lazarus was someone that Jesus truly loved, if you, if you, if you know the scriptures and so forth. John 11, 5, if you're there, it says, now, this is John chapter 11, verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. However, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed in the place where he was. And from there, he decided to go to Judea again. In other words, he didn't rush to Lazarus' side. Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus was asleep. Not asleep, but was asleep. And he would go and wake him up. Hearing this, the disciples thought that Lazarus was merely asleep and would get up. But Jesus made it clear. He makes this clear in verse 14. You're there in, in, in chapter 11 of John. Look at verse 14. What does Jesus say? He says, Lazarus is dead. He wants to make sure that they don't think he's asleep as in taking a nap. Look at John uh, verse 17, 11. We read, this is John chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, so when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for how many days? Four days. So you know in four days, the decomposition had already begun to set in. Martha went to meet Jesus where she says this in John 11, verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's jump to verse 23, where all of this is in John chapter 11. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. Listen to what Martha says in verse 24. She says to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In the next verse, Jesus tells us what the resurrection is. So follow this carefully. This is John eleven twenty five. If you didn't know before, you're going to know what the resurrection is right here. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 26. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yeah, you can say yes, too. Martha said, and she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. But go back to verse 25 when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not an event. The resurrection is a person. The resurrection is our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. He is the resurrection. The resurrection is a person. And this is so important for us, and I'll touch on this later if I have time. It's important because we have a personal relationship to the resurrection and the person who is the resurrection. This means, it means for me, that there's nothing in our life and our circumstances that can't be resurrected. And I'll explain what I mean by that in, in a little, little bit. In saying that I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is telling us that he is the source of both resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the source, the substance, and the first fruits. And he is the cause of both. He's the cause of the resurrection. He's the cause of life. You see, there is no resurrection apart from Christ. And there is no eternal life apart from Christ. Martha expresses her belief that the resurrection is an event to come sometime in the future after death. Jesus reveals here to Martha and to us that the resurrection is a person, namely himself. Now, the revelation by Jesus that he, a person, is a resurrection is borne out by what we see in the scriptures. Uh, you're in the Gospel of John. Back up to the Gospel of John at chapter 5. And look at verse 21. Mark this down if you're not going to go to it right now. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus declares this, and you see it, and it's in red. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. You remember he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He not only 
has life. He is life, meaning he can give life. Here Jesus is vested in the ability, the resurrection ability, authority, and power. This vesting with resurrection power is also seen in the next chapter in John. Look at John. You're right there. Turn over, just just turn over to John chapter 6 and look at verses 40 and 44. In verses 40, this is Jesus speaking. You see it's written in red there. He says that this is the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the resurrection. And four, uh, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He is the resurrection and the light. Now, as a resurrection, Christ is the, and listen to this carefully, Christ is the first fruits of all believers who die in the Lord. As a resurrection, Christ is the first fruits. In other words, he's the first manifestation of this, of all believers who die in the Lord. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians. I do want you to look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. And I'll give you a chance to get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. And you should mark these down. By, by the way, this is one, one message I would get if I were you because it, it has so much information that you need to have so that you will have absolutely no doubt about the resurrection. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, we're told this, and you can read along with me, but silently, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is what I just said earlier. In other words, you know this from the messages we give at memorials. God does not see the person in the casket the way the world sees him. The world sees a person as dead. He sees the person as asleep. And we know one thing about people who are asleep, they wake up and they wake up refreshed and so forth. So Christ risen from the dead becomes the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The scripture points point to being raised up in the last day and Martha thought that since her brother had been dead already for four days, he would have to wait until the last day to be resurrected. This was not the last day when Lazarus was resurrected. This is what I want you to understand. That was not the last day, and yet Jesus resurrected him. The resurrection power in Jesus is full and complete any time that he wants to manifest it. Now, look at John chapter 11, verse 43. John 11 Verse 43, I want you to see this because this is important. It was not the last day, but John eleven forty three 43 records this. It says that Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You see that in red, so you know this is Jesus calling Lazarus forth. And what happened? Lazarus emerges from the grave, bound in hand and foot with grave clothes, Jesus shows us here that neither death nor time is an obstacle to him. In other words, in terms of manifesting the resurrection power and so forth. So it's not, does not have to be confined to a period of time. And uh, so death is not an obstacle and neither is time. Now, I want you to note the reason I wanted you to see this, and you've heard me say this before, Note here that because Jesus was the resurrection with resurrection power, he had to specifically call to Lazarus by name. What does he say? Lazarus, come forth. Why? Because if he had stood in the graveyard and cried out, come forth, all the dead would have come forth. So forth. That's how much power he has as the resurrection. So he specifically cried. I mean, the, the, the writings in the Bible are not there for any, very precise. If it, 
you know, if it wasn't that precise, it would have said he went to the grave and it's called, come forth. He says he cried out to Lazarus, come forth. Very important. Also, as a resurrection, resurrection and the life, we see that Jesus not only has life to give, he is life. That is why death has no power over him and had no power over him because he is life. This is important to us believers because Jesus can confer this life that he has on those who believe in him. And the believer can share in the Lord's victory over death. And we do. That's why we have been promised everlasting life. He who believes in me shall not die, but shall have everlasting life. This is a victory. And remember the last victory is death. You see this recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. I say this, I use this at every memorial that I teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. Are you there? Verse 56 says this, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. 57, but thanks be to God who gives us a victory. That's a victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that we have life through our Lord Jesus Christ is further confirmed in 1 John, that's little John, right before Revelations at the back of the Bible. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, which says this, 11, verse 11. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. God has given us eternal life. That's what we gain through salvation and belief in his son, eternal life. And that life is in his son. Verse 12, he who has a son, that's us believers assembled here today, has life. He does not have the son, non-believers, does not have life. Now, these two scriptures in 1 John 5, 11, 12 shows us that death has no dominion over Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is life. And therefore, death has no dominion over the believer who is in Christ. So forth. They also show us, these scriptures also show us that far from being just a distant event in some expected future, the resurrection is a personal relationship, our personal relationship with the person who is the resurrection, Jesus the Christ. Now, before we close, I want to take another look at an important point about the resurrection that you don't always hear. Just as we see that the resurrection is a person, we can begin to understand that the resurrection is also a perspective. Perspective is a way of viewing things. Uh, now, to understand this, it would be helpful to review the meanings of the two terms, resurrection and perspective. Generally, generally, we know that resurrection is to resurrect. It means to raise from the dead or the grave or to bring back to life. You should also know that the word resurrect or resurrection comes from the same root word as resurge, R-E-S-U-R-G-E. And resurgence means to rise again, to surge back again, to bring something back to life, bring something back into use or existence. Resurgence also means to move to or get on a higher plane or level. In other words, to move to a higher plane or higher level in life. It just doesn't mean to resurrect from the dead. It means to move on to a higher plane to move from a point of lowliness to a point of height. So the word perspective means to see through. For example, if you are a doctor, you see sickness and disease in the body through the eye of a doctor. If you have a doctor's perspective in viewing and dealing with medical challenges in the body. If you are a lawyer, you may see the same body through the lens of an attorney in terms of legal consequences in and of the situation involving the body. While a doctor may see an illness through the eyes of treatment possibilities, a lawyer may see that same illness through the eyes of legal liabilities, legal consequences. That's where you get the ambulance chasers who see an accident and they stop and they uh, get the information of who's involved because they know that there is a possible liability lawsuit there and so forth. So you see the perspective through the eyes or the lens 
of who you are, but through the perspective that you're viewing the situation. Now, through the lens of policing, for example, the police may see your son as a lawbreaker and a criminal, but as a mother, you see your son as that nice little boy who never got into trouble and never gave me any trouble at home. Putting the two meanings together, the resurrection perspective means that we can see things, we can see persons, we can see conditions and situations through the lens of resurrection potential. In other words, whatever is appearing in a negative sense as a person, place, thing, or condition is subject to a resurgence of new life to move that person, thing, or condition to a different, higher plane or to a better experience. The resurrection perspective is being able to see through the eyes of spirit, which I talked about earlier this year. It means that we have the ability to see what is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, which Dr. Jennifer went over in her class this morning in discipleship training. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. You know the scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, which says this, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, which means temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, when the Bible says that they're temporal or temporary, what does that mean? That means that they're all subject to change. They're not fixed, they're not immutable, and so forth. And that's why we have to be careful in judging persons, things, situations, and conditions, and having a fixed thought about them. In other words, this is who that person is. No, that's who that person is appearing to be at that moment. But that person can move on to a higher plane. And most do, if we let them. They may not move on in your eyesight because you're fixed, but they can. In other words, things that are temporary, and that's everything that's seen, everything that's seen, or as Apostle says, everything that's perceived by the senses, the five senses, temporary, subject to change. So we don't focus on the things which are seen because what is seen is what these things appear to be. They appear to be this at the moment. The condition appears to be this. Otherwise, if things didn't change, once you got sick, you could never get healed. Once you're poor, you could never gain wealth or get out of poverty. It would be, so everything is subject to change. Whatever appears to the human eye is subject to change. The things seen are temporary, which means that they are subject to change. When we look at ourselves, at the place we are in, the conditions we are experiencing, the people in our lives, the resurrection perspective means that we can look beyond sight. We don't see these things, these people or conditions as static or in a fixed situation. You know, once bad, always bad. Not true. We can see them moving to a different, higher plane to better or more successful existence. We can see the potential and possibility of a dynamic resurgence of positive change in every circumstance. And this is why the resurrection perspective is so important. It means that you can resurrect that dead, empty bank account that dead, empty marriage, that dead relationship with members of your family, that dead job or dead-end career, that dead college experience, and that seemingly dying body racked with disease. And a lot of us face physical challenges. Unfortunately, and I'm not confessing to this, but one of the, one of the things to look forward to as you get older is dynamic encounters with the fiery darts of the enemy, so forth. You need to know that your body racked with disease and pain can resurrect from that position and move on to a higher plane of wholeness and wellness and so forth. So, so the list is endless. The resurrection perspective and power means that there is a renewing and restoring process at work at all time. That's what the resurrection victory of Jesus brings to us. It's a constant renewing, a constant restoring, and so forth. That's why we can have a healing line, because you can be restored from whatever challenge uh, you're, you're faced with at the time. There's always a possibility 
of, uh, of uh, moving to a higher plane in life and so forth. So the resurrection perspective means, and you can turn to the scripture, look at Romans 4.17. We were just there a minute ago. We didn't read this particular verse. 4.17, it talks about God calling those things which do not exist as though they did. With the resurrection perspective, we can do the same thing. We can call those things that do not exist as though they did. And this is what God does when God declares the end from the beginning. And I talked about this before. You can declare your end goal from the beginning. When you set a goal, you don't, you don't set a goal and you list step one and that's it. You do step one through five or through 10 or whatever. And the last point is the end goal. Well, we have the God-given ability to see the end from the beginning. We can visualize the end from the beginning. In other words, when you start college, you can visualize yourself crossing the stage, receiving your diploma. If you're in medical school, you can see yourself receiving that medical degree. Or like me in law school, you can see yourself getting that law degree and so forth. And obviously a lot of students in school don't see this because some flunk out in year one. I had uh, uh, kids, t- kids, they weren't kids, but I had classmates say to me in law school, you know, I, I never uh, uh, knew that law was so difficult. I don't think this is for me and so forth. Because something is difficult, it does not mean that it's, it, 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 it's not for you. Challenge shouldn't be the first thing that you, that causes you to quit and run. Uh, I'm going to talk about this later, but the resurrection victory gives us something that enables us to fight through any challenge. It gives us perseverance. We can persevere and you will find in life. And, uh, and, and I say this, especially to young people, because many of you are just starting out of all of the elements that they talk about, the traits that they talk about that you should have. To me, the most important one, the most important one is perseverance. To have that grit, never give up spirit and so forth. And I'm going to teach on this later because it's so important because what happens is that because we don't know that we have that resurrection power, when you start out on something, and it could be a business, it could be a particular career path, it could be a, a major in school and so forth, and the first trouble that you run into, you want to drop out and quit and say, this is not for me. That's not, that's not what that necessarily means. It just means that you have to dig a little deeper. You have to study a little harder. And it may be, it's a testing of your determination. It is a trying of your faith. It is a testing of your endurance. And as the, as the scripture said, we have need of patience. Patience is endurance, perseverance, and so forth. And that's what a lot of times the obstacles are all about. It's for developing persistence. And I love what Henry Ford says. He says that a failure is not a failure if you learn something. In other words, if you use it as a stepping stone. And so through all of the inventions, when he failed, he just used it as a stepping stone to try a different avenue and so forth. That's what we have to do in life. An obstacle, a seeming failure, does not mean that that's not the path that you should be on. Persistence and knowing that you have the resurrection power in you, that you can move from that plane onto a higher plane. So on this resurrection day in 2018, let's always remember those magnificent words, he is risen. And know that we have a personal relationship with the person who is the resurrection, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we have today the benefit of the resurrection perspective that enables us to see beyond sight what we see in terms of person, place, thing, and condition. And we can see beyond that. And we can see an allness and an illness. We can see a wholeness and an illness. We can see completion and something that seemingly appears to be a failure. We can do that because we have the resurrection uh, perspective. Enjoy your resurrection day. Enjoy your lunch this afternoon. And we'll see you next week.
Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.